there's an overarching message here. It is that you have to be as intentional about when as you are about these other dimensions. That, that these when decisions are strategic decisions. They're not incidental decisions. Here's what's happening. We're making mistakes. Um, that's number one. Number two, we're reducing our happiness. Number three, we're leaving capacity on the table. That is, that is which is which we shouldn't be doing. Like, like, like you don't want to go through life leaving capacity on the table. That we could be doing a lot better work and being enjoying it more if we make these small changes to do the right work at the right time. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. Today, we are talking about perfect timing. Literally, when is the best time to do certain daily activities? When's the best time to have certain types of conversation? When is the best time to do just about anything from exercising to sleeping and on and on? It's amazing. It comes from the research of our guest, highly acclaimed author, Dan Pink. He is the author of six provocative books. Most of them I know very well, but they include his newest one. And that's really the, the focus of today's show. It's called when the scientific secrets of perfect timing. His other books include the long running New York times bestseller, a whole new mind and the number one New York times bestsellers drive and to sell is human. These types of messages I think are just so intriguing because it's true research. And in that sense, somewhat irrefutable. And then we can take it and reorient our lives around the inner information for immediate success. You can get this new book when the scientific secrets of perfect timing at danpink.com or of course, wherever you buy books. As I queue up the discussion with Dan Pink, let me share some great resources and offers with you. With uh, an always every show resource, you need to be going to Ziggler.com. Don't go it alone for another day of your life. Go to Ziggler.com. See where you can partner with us. Okay, then, folks, here is a great conversation and truly actionable material with Dan Pink as we discuss the right timing for your life. Well, Daniel, I have known of you since you wrote Free Agent Nation quite a while ago and just really honored to finally connect with you here today because the Ziggler audience needs this message. So thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. And I, I really wanted to start with context. Again, I have known of you so much. And of course, lately we've been doing our research on you and what you're doing today. But just from the contextual standpoint, I mean, at some point you were a, a kid in school at ground zero, like everybody starts. <laughs> and uh, what, what happened back then? I mean, even upbringing wise that helped direct you to where you what? find yourself today. So really the question is what went wrong? Exactly. That was exactly my question. Yeah. Yes. Um, Let's see here. So I'll give you the quick, quick background here. All right, Kevin. please. So I, so I grew up in, in central Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, uh, middle-class family, middle of America, uh, went to college. Um, I, I went to law school basically because I was concerned about economic security. Uh, didn't mm -hmm. really like law school, never practiced law. Instead, went into politics, uh, worked as a political speechwriter for a while, then decided I hated politics. Um, and what I discovered in Basically, the span between my teens, late teens and my early 30s was that uh, I was always writing on the side. So I had other jobs, but I was always writing articles, magazine articles, newspaper articles. And finally, I'm a kind of a slow learner. It took me into my early 30s. And I realized that what I was doing on the side was sort of what I did. That is like what I was doing on the side has sort of been what I did at the center. And so 20 years ago, I quit my job and said, I'm going to try to make it as a writer doing writing my own stuff. Uh, now, that's not as bold of a move as one might think, because my wife kept her job. She kept her health insurance. So it wasn't this like mm -hmm. massive leap into the unknown. Um, and so that's what I did 20 years ago. And I've tried to just write about what I'm interested in, because I figure that if I'm interested in it, other people are interested in it. And that was my next question. So you, you, you like writing, you're doing stuff for on the political side that you may or may not have cared about, uh, but you're writing here. Where then came that idea of what you do want to write, where you want to expend that effort? It seems that from the history, it was, you wanted to influence people towards certain things. Is that, was that a cognizant? That's part of it. That's part of it. Although okay. I think the bigger thing is I was curious about, uh, stuff okay. that is, it wasn't even, 
uh, I mean, for better and probably for worse, it was a little bit more uh, inward focused. So it was really so my first book, which I'm, I'm delighted that you even remember, Kevin, was a book called Free Agent Nation about people working for themselves. And so on that one, I was just curious. I, I decided to go work for myself. I noticed around I noticed, you know, in my neighborhood and elsewhere in the in the country, there were a lot of people who were doing this kind of stuff. I said, well, what's what's going on here? Why are so many people doing this? And that was the impetus of my first book. Now, it had the the knock on effect, I hope, of helping people who were stuck in bad jobs, maybe leave their job and do their own thing. But the but the initial push was really just, hey, what's going on here? Maybe I can figure it out. And was there from that effort and from the influence it had on people, was that really the impetus that said, Hey, this is the direction I want to go. And then you went on into your next book, but you're saying it wasn't with an overall, my understanding, it wasn't with an overall, this is what I want to impart to humanity so much as this is what I'm curious about right now. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. There wasn't this, there was no, so it's much uh, smaller and narrower in scope. Um, so it wasn't as if I had some kind of um, big agenda where I said, you know, as you just put it, Kevin, you know, this is what I want to impart to humanity. Right. It was like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on there. Maybe I can figure it out. It was it was much smaller, narrower, quieter than that. Well, you do though have, it seems to, as we did our research, I say we did our research, Lori, who's listening right now, she did most of the research. Thank you, Lori. And I just keep seeing human behavior come along that that does seem to be a continual thread. Okay. So tell me about that because that does seem to be a, a unifying thread through everything you're doing. Yeah, no, you're right about that. And, 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 but it's one of the things that I've always been curious about. And at some level I'm, you know, it's like, like what, who are these crazy people called human beings and why are they doing what they're doing and what the heck is going on here? And especially when you look at them through the lens of work, um, Mm. which might be a common thread, um, part of the mixed metaphor there, but there might be a common thread of, of work there. That is, if you look at, you know, if you look at us human beings, we spend over half of our waking hours at work mm-hmm. and it becomes this uh, uh, platform on, on which you can examine, you know, what makes people tick? Uh, how do they get along? Uh, what are their goals? What are their aspirations? What are their frustrations? Um, uh, why do they get along well with some people and not so well with other people? How do people accomplish things? What do people do in the face of setbacks? How do they organize their time? I mean, so so it just becomes this this place where you can get all kinds of insights into the human condition. And, and I think that that's really what I was curious about. So is that, would you say that, yeah, the, still the workplace is your primary muse for these interests? Yes and no. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's um, I think, you know, some of my books are, are focused much more on the work on, on the workplace. My latest book um, is, I think has a broader, uh, broader scope to it. Um, be, just because I was curious about how people, the book is about timing and I was just so curious about um, how do people make decisions about when to do things. And we, we make decisions about when to do things not only we obviously a big part of that is in our work and that's hugely important, but we also make decisions in other parts of our life about when to do things. So when you're in these different areas that you've written on, that you have been curious about that you put your focus on, what has been, again, just jumping back to the, yeah. the context of you, what have you found as a primary just driver for you? What, what motivates you to go after these messages? You know, it's partly, um, I mean, I go, again, it goes back to this idea of, of trying to figure stuff out um, for myself, but also on behalf of other people. Um, I, I think that when, we, when people move through the world, they get a lot of information, they get a lot of data, they have a lot of experience, but they don't really have a good frame through which to look at it. They don't really have the frame, the context, whatever, you know, whatever you think about that. And so I guess at some level, that's what I'm trying, trying to do. It's like, okay, you, you're, you're going through your day, you're bombarded with experiences, you're bombarded with interactions with other people, you're bombarded with, with feelings and, and goals and, and thoughts and whatever, and, and this whole crazy world that we're living in. And I guess my view is, let me 
see if I can in some small way sort it out for you so it makes a little bit more sense. So you, I have been uh, shown, have you got, a, you got a family that you are highly devoted to. How has, has some of this come into them? Have they been part of your muse and some of the place that you have experimented or wanted to impart this to just as you, you've experienced marriage, uh, three kids, I believe. And has that been a part of the journey? Oh, absolutely. I'm in a number of different dimensions. So if you look at, you know, even how I write my books, my, my wife is a hugely important partner in everything that I do in my business and including my book. So just to give you one small example of that, um, so for this latest book and, and other ones, um, she, I'm talking to you from my, uh, my office here, which is my garage behind my house in Washington, D.C. And over here is a chair. I can even show it to you, Kevin. I think you can see that. Yeah, yeah, got it. Okay, so there's a chair right there. And, um, and for, for this latest book and the other ones, uh, she, uh, uh, Jessica would sit in that chair. And if you can believe this, um, she at various stages, she read out loud to me every word in this book. Wow. Um, and I also read out loud to her every word in that book, because one way that I help, one way that I edit, it's helpful for me to edit is to hear it. Um, and it's a very different experience to hear words on a page than it is to read words on a page. And even within that little tiny micro world, it's a different experience to read words aloud and to have words read aloud to you. Mm -hmm. And that really helps me. That's hugely important in, in my editing process. Am I making sense? Am I being as concise as possible? Is there stuff in there that doesn't belong? And one way I figure that out is by torturing my wife, basically. <laughs> okay. So with that, it's interesting. I mean, you guys are talking about time and in yeah. my own family, it is of course the uh, biggest commodity that we have and we're scheduling the kids and scheduling the family stuff. Right. So what, what would you say from the time of you starting this book, you guys working on it together, have you made some specific, some tangible changes as a result of it? Oh, absolutely. In my own work, there's no question about it. So I mean, the sort of the big idea in this in, the, in this book is that when we make our timing decisions, when we make our when decisions, we do it based on intuition and guesswork. And 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 I'm arguing that that's not the right way to do it, uh, that we can make our decisions about when to do things um, in a much more systematic, intelligent way based on the evidence, because there is this enormous, rich body of science out there across literally a couple of dozen disciplines that gives us the clues, that gives us the evidence, that gives us the data about how to make these timing decisions in a smarter, shrewder, more systematic way. Um, and so that the idea is that we tend to think that timing is an art, but it's really a science. And so I've applied that to many, many domains of my life. I'll give you one example of it. One of the things that we know from the science of timing is that human beings typically move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Most of us, except for the one in five of us who are extreme night owls, move through it in that order, peak, trough, recovery. And uh, what, the, what the science tells us is that during our peak, which for most of us is the morning, not for night owl, not for the 20% of us who are, you know, go to sleep late and wake up late, they're much more complicated. The world is much more cruel to them hmm. than to the rest of us, um, uh, that we're better off doing our in the morning during our peak, we're better off doing our analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus, attention, um, and, you know, uh, sort of mental energy directed in one place. It's that, that the peak is when the research tells us we're best, we're most vigilant. We can bat away distractions. And not, during the trough, uh, it's a early to mid-afternoon, very dangerous time. Uh, and a whole uh, in healthcare, in traffic, in st school standardized test scores, big declines in in how students perform, big problems inside of hospitals during this period, hmm. more auto accidents. Uh, so during the trough, we should be doing our administrative work, answering our routine email and whatnot. And then during the recovery, uh, we sh we're better off doing more of our creative work because during the recovery, while we're less vigilant than we are during the peak, we're in a, we're in a our mood is back up. So the combination of that looseness and a higher mood makes it a good time for things like brainstorming. All of which is to say, Kevin, is that once I under, once I got wind of this, the, these, these forces and, and, and the, the, uh, the science underlying it, uh, I did, I was much more intentional about my own schedule. Mm -hmm. So I, um, so for this latest book, um, 
when I, the way I wrote it was I would clear the decks in the morning, which is my time peak time for analytic work. I would clear the decks. I would not even bring my phone in the office. I would set myself a quota, 800 words, 700 words, whatever. And I wouldn't do anything. Wouldn't look at my email. Wouldn't uh, answer the phone. Wouldn't check Twitter. Wouldn't go to ESPN.com. Wouldn't do any of the things that I often spend my time doing um, until I hit that 800 word number. Um, and I, and so, so this latest book, I wrote probably 90% of the words of this book before noon. Um, which is not like it was for, for other kinds of books. Um, and this is also no joke. It was the first book I delivered on time. Um, the other, the other five books, I blew my deadline being a writer and all. And, um, on this one, I actually made my deadline. So it had a huge, huge effect on, on, um, on how I do my work. I'll give you one example from the family side of it too, since you asked about that. So one of the things that we know is, I mean, one of the most important things that comes out in this research is that our cognitive abilities don't remain the same throughout the day. They change. Our performance changes. Our our brain power changes over the course of a day. That's just how things are. That's just the way the world works, the way that we as biological creatures operate. And one of the things that we know, which I hinted at earlier, is that uh, hospitals can be um, and surgery can be very dangerous during that early during the afternoon during once you come out of that peak morning period. So you look at things like anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. Four times more likely to have an anesthesia error at that time of day. Hand washing in hospitals, huge deterioration um, in the afternoon. Even something like colonoscopies. Uh, Doctors uh, doing colonoscopies find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams for the same population. So I look at these evidence, and so I, my elder daughter had to have her wisdom teeth taken out about a year and a half ago, and I was in the midst of looking at all this research, and I was like, okay, had four wisdom teeth taken out, general anesthesia. Okay, you're getting the first appointment in the morning. You are not <laughs> yeah. going to have your wisdom teeth taken out in the afternoon. This is not a close call. I don't care what's going on. Morning appointment for you. So, so, so this book really, I mean, probably even more than the previous books that I've written, really had a big change in sort of the day-to-day way that I run my life. So are you making an effort even to call out to an industry like that, the healthcare, to say, look, during these time periods, you either need to not do those things or you need to do X, Y, Z to try to mitigate the natural trust? Yeah. I'm trying to. I mean, what I'm so I'm glad you asked that. So you know, so I wrote about some steps that healthcare systems are taking to mitigate that. So so one of the things that you can do is, and and I and I write about going to the University of Michigan Medical Center where I stood in on surgery. And one of the things that they do is they take they basically take a time out, um, take a time out, step back from the surgery table, go over a check. I mean, I can show you one of the checklist cards right yeah. over here. You know, go over like. Um, um, you know, here's the pre-incision time card for the pre-incision timeout. All right. And so they, they, I mean, obviously your podcast listeners don't know what we're talking about, but it, what I'm showing Kevin is a, is a green laminated card with a set of steps, a yeah. set of basically a checklist. And so what these physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals gathered around this surgery table will do is they will literally take a step back and they will go through the checklist and making sure they've got everything done. It's a way to restore their vigilance. Uh, I mentioned that that study about hand washing in hospitals for nurses. Huge deterioration, as I said, in hand washing during the afternoon. One way to get that back up is to give the nurses more breaks and certain kinds of breaks, particularly social breaks. So, uh, so there are remedies. There are definitely remedies for these things. There are ways to fix it. There are ways to mitigate it. Uh, and I write about those, and I'm and, you know, I'm trying to encourage that um, uh, because there's huge, huge health ramifications for not doing it. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. So, again, it's it is a it is a honoring this natural cycle. Right. And submitting to it to one degree. Uh, is it, is it submitting to it or mitigating it? Literally, as you look at it, saying because a lot of us 
uh, will, uh, a lot of us, I'll speak directly, me, I'm going to tend to look at that and go, okay, how can I make the trough not happen? I'm guessing that you're going to say you can't. You can't. You can't. So I think it, when you talk about the trough, okay, so I think it's a, it's a few things there. It's a great question. So so basically what you want to do, not you, you I mean, you, Kevin, including you, Kevin. You can talk but, straight to me. Okay. I'm here for counseling. <laughs> Everybody out there is that you want to move your analytic work to your peak. Again, okay. if you're a night owl, your peak is going to be late afternoon and into the evening. You want to move. So what does that mean? Writing a report, analyzing data, doing serious strategic preparation for something. You want to do that during your peak when you're most vigilant. So you want to move that work over to your, your peak period. During your trough, we are just not at our best. And this is one of the things that we really need to understand about this research. Our brain power does not remain the same over the course of the day. We are not as good with our brains at every time, at every time of day, period, full stop. And what we need to do, and there's, there, we can, what we should do is we should design around that. Again, okay. so move your analytic work to the peak. Now, during the trough, it doesn't mean that you go take a three-and-a-half-hour siesta. But that's not realistic for most of us. What you want to do is all of us have, for instance, certain kinds of routine things that they have to do in the course of a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, answering uh, email. Um, I mean, I've got a list of things here. You know, I got to, like, check on some travel stuff. Uh, I have to RSVP for uh, um, uh, a dinner. I have to email somebody to block off some dates on my calendar. All kinds of like, like kind of crappy administrative stuff there. I don't want to do that stuff during my peak. I want to do that stuff during the trough. Um, and at the same time, what you want to do is you actually want to be much more intentional about taking breaks. Okay. Um, and, and so you can't suffocate it. You can't just, you know, it's not a candle where you can just like put out the candle but what you can do is you can take some steps to make it um, to, to steer around it. And you can take some steps to um, uh, make sure that it, it doesn't it isn't as harmful as it could be if you're not aware of it and not intentional about dealing with it. It's one thirty where I'm standing in Colorado. I think three thirty your time. We're talking to each other in the trough. Is that good or bad? Yeah, I, I, well, um, I was actually very intentional. I mean, sir, you know what? Because I was actually intentional about that. So mm-hmm. I, I recognize that because what we had is. To your point earlier, it's like you can't just shut down everything. And so for me, I knew I was going to talk to you, and I knew that we were going to talk for a decent amount of time. Uh, before I came on here, I actually took a break. I went and outside and took a short walk. Uh, it's a sunny day here in Washington. It's freaking cold, but it's a sunny day here in Washington, D.C. And what we know about the, the science of breaks is that breaks are incredibly important. They're incredibly important in restoring our mental energy and our mental acuity, and they're especially important during the trough. So I knew that I'm talking to you not at, at necessarily the worst time of day, but not a great time for me. And so I went out, and, and as I mentioned before, you're, I, I have this refurbished garage that's my office. So I just took a short, I mean, literally just a five-minute walk because I was a little bit behind schedule. But I said, there's no way I can have an intelligent conversation with Kevin at this time of day, if I don't, if I'm not intentional about doing something about it. And so I read over you, you guys had sent me a, like a three pager PDF about, mm-hmm. about what, how the interview is going to go. So I was make that's sort of equivalent. I didn't think about it till just now. It's sort of equivalent to this little card that the surgeons use. Right. So I went over that and then I took a little, I mean, a short break. I mean, it took a five minute walk outside. So I knew that this was going to be suboptimal for me. And so I said, I got to take a few small, not, not anything major, just a few small steps to make sure that I'm at my best so I can you know, respond to your intelligent questions and, and give your listeners something valuable. So your book here, when the scientific secrets of perfect timing, it has been, I looked at Amazon today. It's just over 60 days since it came out. Uh, you're at 460. You were at that moment, uh, overall in books, which is great. Obviously you've hit a nerve here. We know that already, what has been the feedback though? Cause you're talking about something to, especially yeah. when you're talking about the breaks, it's countercultural to how we all tend to jive, especially in the workplace. And from a high achievement standpoint, I mean, we're still battling the people who are bragging about four hours of sleep tonight so they can go conquer the world. We know that doesn't work. You're taking it further. Are you getting good reception? Tell me. Great reception. And I think your analogy is really good. So, you know, so the book, you know, uh, we've got eight, eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. We're selling a lot of copies, translations into 
over two dozen languages right now. I'm hearing from a lot of readers. I'm hearing from a lot of readers in healthcare, believe it or not, a lot of physicians, a lot of nurses on this kind of thing. But you, what, what your, your analogy is exactly right. And that when we talk about these, especially on this idea of breaks, because remember with the, the sleep deprivation, remember mm-hmm. with the four hours of sleep, 15 years ago, that was a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And, but now we know it's not. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? We had the science of sleep matured and the science of sleep entered the public consciousness. So now we know four hours of sleep, not a good idea. That person bragging about it, that person's not a hero. He's an idiot and because he's hurting his own performance. And worse, he might be hurting my performance if I have to work with him. The science of breaks is exactly where the science of sleep was back then. Um, uh, that, That the science of breaks is deepening. We know a lot more about breaks and, um, and I think it's reaching public consciousness. So what we know is that we should be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. Uh, we, should, we know that on, on the kinds of breaks that we, we should be taking, we know that you're better off. First of all, we know something is better than nothing. So even taking a two or three minute break is better than this ridiculous ethic of always powering through. Mm-hmm. Powering through might feel morally virtuous, but it's a bad idea for your pre- productivity and your creativity. Um, we know that um, uh, moving is better than stationary, so you're better off moving around during your break. We know that outside is better than inside because there's some credible research on the replenishing mm-hmm. effects of nature. Uh, we know that social is better than solo, that you're better off going out on a break with somebody else rather than alone. Um, so, uh, and, and we also know about detachment. Um, we know that the best breaks are fully detached. So you're leaving your phone behind. You're not talking about work. So my very short, I mean, my break honored some of those design principles and that it wasn't, it was only five minutes long, but something is better than nothing. I was moving around. I was taking a walk. Um, I was not with another person. So it was solo, um, but I was fully detached. I didn't bring my phone with me uh, and I was outside. And so those kinds of um, those kind, you know, what we know is that we have evidence here about why breaks matter, and we have evidence here about what kind of breaks are most restorative. Well, so I'm curious, and, I, and I'll give you, uh, you don't know my background. I'm standing in a medical practice that I am a partner in. It's a functional medicine practice. So this type of stuff you're talking about, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, on one hand, you're talking about our performance right now, getting the best out of ourselves, having, you know, having joy and fulfillment and everything in, in the moment. But, at, you know, looking down further, I mean, now we're measuring chromosome, you know, length and telomeres and looking at this the, the lack of, of the, of rest in this sense, the, the yeah. stress that we take in is also what is giving us the chronic illness and disease we have down the road. So, I mean, I feel like you're, you're not speaking just to today. You're speaking to our today and, and our tomorrows in a significant way of uh, yeah life quality. Overall. Well, but our life, but I mean, life, life quality is the accumulation of our today's. So yes. it's, it's in some ways the same question, you know, I mean, yeah. um, it's, 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 um, you know, and, and it's hard for us as human beings to sort of process, um, to think about our lives in that very abstract way, our life. All right. That's kind of an abstract thing. Today is a little bit more concrete. What am I going to do today is, 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 is more concrete. It's also much more at people's fingertips. I can do yeah. something about that. Yeah. So it's, so it's basically, oh, I have chronic stress and, and I see that, I, I see that, um, um, you know, I, I have chronic stress and, and my, that my longevity is going to be shortened. All right. What do I do? All right. I mean, that's, that's like kind of abstract and big, Yeah. but if you say to me, Hey, you know what? Breaks make you feel better and perform better. So today take two 10 minute breaks. I say, I'm on it. I can do that. Okay. So at this point, I mean, we talked earlier about your own foray into making writing your primary focus. Do you look at yourself as a journalist, as a writer, or at this point, I mean, research is such a huge part of what you're doing. Are, yeah. you, are you a researcher? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I always define myself as a writer, but I mean, I, you know, since, but research plays a huge, huge role, obviously, in my, um, in my, um, uh, in my writing. And I'm not a researcher in the sense that, you know, you have scholars who are doing original research where they're conducting their own experiments and running right. their own laboratories. I don't do that. Um, so, so I, I would consider myself a writer, but a writer who relies on 
on science and, and research very, very, very heavily. So going back to free agent nation and you yeah. saying, gosh, that really came because you were seeing the people around, you know, all these people are doing their own gigs and different, different things. Where did the curiosity come for this book on time? Uh, you know, or, or was there a specific catalyst that drove you this direction? Were you seeing a problem or desire and an opportunity? What happened there? Again, it's, it's very similar. I mean, you'll see a pattern here because it's the answer to that is similar to the answer of the sort of broader question you asked before. It was really, hey, I'm making a lot of decisions about timing. When should I go to the gym? Mm -hmm. When should I do this work? When should I do that kind of work? When should I um, start a project? When should I stop a project? And I was making them in a, I, I thought, in, in an ill-informed way. And so I wanted to make them in a better way. So it was really, I figured like, okay, there's got to be a better way to make this. What, how can I crack the code of, of this? Uh, but it was much more you know, focused on my own frustration, really, than on anything, uh, than on anything else. That said, I always, I, I think it's important, it's helpful many times to extrapolate from one's own experience because if I'm frustrated by these decisions, probably other people are too. It's not like I have this, like I'm such a uniquely, I'm such a unique snowflake in the universe that, that no, that, you know, that I'm experiencing things radically different from everybody else. No, I figure if I'm frustrated by these decisions, other people are too. Well, you talked about, I'm going to go back to the three things, the morning peak, the time to do the analytical work, which is the second time. And I think two weeks now I've heard that Chris Ducker uh, is a guy we interviewed recently. And he talked about that. He doesn't open his email. He doesn't do all those things that I had to admit. I do. I do that. I'm curious. I want to see what's there and I'm doing that. So that's the second time I've heard that. Now you're talking about the trough in the middle and these times to take some breaks, to disconnect, mm -hmm. to disengage. The third one you said was recovery, the later, and I assume that's later in the day, the recovery time you yeah. said, and you cited that as creative, which before hearing that I would have thought to have put that in that morning time of creativity. You've, you, and you've even mentioned brainstorming, one of my favorite things to do, and you're putting it here. So just uh, define that a little bit for us. Yeah. So this is, this is some very interesting research and and, and what it, and and what these researchers call it is the following. So, what the researchers call it is the inspiration paradox. And so, here's what it means. Here's here's basically people are better doing their analytic work at their optimal times, but people are better at doing insight work, work that requires creativity, um, conceptual thinking um, at the, at their less optimal times. That's the paradox, exactly as you're identifying. So they call it these these researchers call it the inspiration paradox. So. Um, and this is true. Again, um, what we need to think about is peak trough recovery, because there, again, one out of five of us, these owls are going in the reverse order, recovery mm -hmm. trough peak. So they're hitting their analytic peak later in the much later in the day and into the evening. So it's not so much necessarily about the magic of the at late afternoon. It's true for 80 percent of us. But for some of us, it's the other way around, mm -hmm. all of which is to say it's easy to explain, actually. So here we go. So what we know is the pattern of our mood typically for 80% of us goes like this, peak trough recovery, right? That's our pattern of our mood. So what we have in that recovery is elevated mood. Okay, that's number one. Okay. Number two, what makes the peak the ideal time to do analytic work is that during the peak, we are most vigilant. That's when our vigilance is highest. Okay, Our vigilance is not especially high in this recovery period. So what do we have? We have elevated mood and less vigilance. That's actually a potent combination for things like brainstorming. If you're brainstorming, you don't want to be hypervigilant. Yeah. We've been in brainstorming sessions with a hypervigilant person. That's a stupid idea. That's a stupid idea. That's a stupid idea. That's a stupid idea. Right. What you want is you want to be a little looser. Um, and so you want to be less vigilant, but you also want to be not more, more positive than negative. And so higher mood, elevated mood, and a little looseness makes it a good time huh for seeing non-obvious solutions, for connecting dots you wouldn't have connected when you were locked down and focused analyzing those data. So, uh, so we're better off doing that insight work in the recovery period. I'm also hearing a little glass of wine in there would probably help. Whatever works for you. Okay. Uh, whatever well, gets you, whatever gets you through the day and night. That's my motto. The, well, so, I mean, you're talking, I mean, this is research. So you're saying this isn't your opinion. You didn't come out here no, and just no, craft no, 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 this. No, no. This is research. I mean, th that's significant when we're looking at, again, our overall lives. And I know you, you look, you, you talk to that, but are the workplace, are you literally working with 
with workplace groups, corporate, whatever to, to cra- you talked about healthcare to craft their day around that. Cause you just dictated what we would now go and set our meeting times for, or our employee activity for, if I want the best for my company, which I'm standing in one right now, we're not doing this. We have, we're doing it compl- like you talked about completely haphazard off the cuff. And you're saying, no schedule this for this time. This, if we want the best, that's, that's a big that's deal. Exactly what I'm, that's a, it's exactly what I'm saying. And you hit on something. I mean, you hit on um, a really important point, Kevin. I mean, let's talk about meetings. The way we schedule meetings in organizations is appalling, really. When we schedule meetings in organizations, the only criterion that we use is availability. Right. That's it. Right. Who's available? We don't think, hmm, does this meeting require analytic thinking? Does this meeting require um, uh, brainstorming and iterative thinking? Does this meeting purely, is this meeting purely about administrative things? Who's going to be at this meeting? Are there going to be people more inclined to be early people or is going to be people more inclined to be late people? We don't, th- we don't even ask those questions. We just say, who's available? And, and the problem here is, is one of, well, sort of two, it's a pr- basically a problem of intentionality. Right. We're very intentional about certain things. What are we going to do? We're intentional about that. How we're going to do it, we're reasonably intentional about that. Um, who are we going to do it with? Like, we don't just hire anybody off the street to work in our company, right? And so, but when it comes to when we do things, we're not intentional about it. We don't think that it matters. And, and the evidence is basically there screaming at us saying, it matters. It matters. It matters a heck of a lot that when we do things is a strategic decision. It's not a logistical decision. It's not an administrative decision. It's not an availability decision. It's a strategic decision. I'm not saying that when matters more than what we do or how we do it or who we do it with, but it matters just as much. And the evidence here is overwhelming. There's evidence showing that time of day, just time of day alone, explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on the job. That's a big deal. Um, and that, And we've only been talking about the day. We haven't been, we can widen the scope here a little bit and talk more, in, you know, and, and actually think more broadly, how do beginnings affect what we do? How do midpoints affect what we do? How do endings affect what we do? How do groups coordinate in time? And all of those things have a material effect on how we feel, how we perform. And if there's an overarching message here, it is that you have to be as intentional about when as you are about these other dimensions. That, that these when decisions are strategic decisions. They're not incidental decisions. If we do not heed this research, this message you brought us, what are we as a culture missing out on most? Well, we're, 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 here's what's happening. We're making mistakes. Um, that's number one. Number two, we're reducing our happiness. Number three, we're leaving capacity on the table. That is... That is, which is, which we shouldn't be doing. Like, like, like you don't want to go through life leaving capacity on the table that we could be doing a lot better work and being enjoying it more. If we make these small changes to do the right work at the right time. Peak performance. We talk about that a lot. Totally. This, the Ziegler show is inspiring your true performance. And they're everybody in our audience right now. They're here listening for one reason. They want more. They want to do better. They want to be better. And so we're all looking for the magic pill. We're looking for the perfect solution. Um, but on this one, this is a foundation. Good. Yeah. There is no, here, you know, you know, this, there is no perfect, there is no right. magic pill. There is no perfect solution. What I'm saying is, is that you start making when decisions more strategically. And what are you going to do? You're going to turn that, that dial a little bit more in your favor. Yeah. You're going to up your probability. If you make, if you make better when decisions, are you guaranteed to do great work? No. But if you make one decisions, are your odds better of doing great work? Absolutely, mm-hmm. unequivocally, 100. They're, they're much, much higher than, than they would be. And so here's the way I look at it. So if you have, like, you have to look at things in, 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 a, in a probabilistic way. So if I have, you know, if I have ordinarily a, you know, I, I'm just making this up. I have a, ordinarily a 19% chance of doing great work. And I can move my schedule around or make better win decisions. And I can take that 19% chance and turn it into a 25% chance. Okay. Now it's still 75% chance that things are not going to go very well for me, but to go from 19% to 25%, 
I'll totally take that. Yeah. Over time, that kind of probability really, really adds up. And that's what we're talking about here is making more intentional evidence-based decisions that turn the dial more in your favor. I was looking at some of the reviews literally on uh, Amazon, looking at the book and saw maybe one, maybe two that mentioned the word you're calling us to slow down. I don't hear that though. You're talking, you're, you're calling us to, to pause, recover, and then we can go, not that we're going to go faster, but better. We can go better. Yeah. I'm agnostic about speed. Um, okay. It's, it's not about speed. It's about intention. It's about doing the right work at the, uh, doing the right work at the right time. And so it's this, so, so my book is not about mindfulness, although there's a lot of good evidence behind mindfulness. Sure. It's, it's, it's really about, can we make decisions about when to do things in a smarter way? Can we say, Hey, beginnings have a certain effect in our behavior. Let me be aware of that. When I begin a project, midpoints have a, a certain effect in our behavior. Let me be aware of that. When I'm in the middle of a project, mm-hmm. endings have a certain effect in our behavior. Let me be aware of that when I think about the, how a particular customer experience or customer transaction ends. Rather than just forget about that, be much more intentional about figuring out how it ends. Um, and so, so it's really, it's not about slowing down or speeding up. It's, it's about uh, paying attention. Okay. So I, I want to get, get literal here on a few things. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I, I do a lot of shows, a lot of great inspirational messages. There are some that come along that I want to restructure my life after. This is one of them. So thank you. I'm the, I'm the first and greatest recipient of the show already. So I uh, appreciate that. But and I'm literally thinking, okay, if I'm going to restructure to get the most out of my time, to get the most out of my win, I, I have things that I do day to day, the rituals that you talked about that I'm going to now want to put in these slots from, yeah. you talked about analytical and, you know, when's it, and, and when's the time to deal with the busy work, the, uh, uh the emails and whatnot, when's right. the time to have the critical thinking, when's the time to be creative, but even in the, taking it out of the workplace or just into our individual lives, the things that I need to do where I am, well, here's one. When should I have a hard conversation with my wife? Well, it's interesting. Uh, that's a great question. It really depends on what the um, what your goal is in that conversation. I mean, I, so I think there's a I think there's a good um, uh, I I think there's a good argument for doing the following. For we know this pattern of mood in the course of a day: right. up, down, up. Um, I would probably have that hard conversation when both of you have a um, are at a time where you're more likely to have a higher mood than a lower mood. Uh, if you have a lower mood in a hard conversation, that can actually spiral downward pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So you might want to go to when you have a um, you might want to go to when you have a higher mood. The other thing that you can do is is um, people tend to be more replenished after a break, and so you know if you have a break before the conversation, um, that can also be helpful. Uh, but I think that in many ways, Kevin, the fact that you're simply asking that question is the breakthrough. Okay. Um, because what we have to do and what we don't do enough of is we have to observe our own behavior better. Um, and so what is it like to have a tough conversation at this time of day versus that time of day? Mm-hmm. What is it like to have a tough conversation on a weekday versus a weekend? Uh, that ends up being, you know, that's what we're talking. That's what I'm talking about at some level at the, at the broad level of intentionality. We have to be better observers of our own behavior. And to some extent, we have to operate in our professional lives in our in our personal professional and managerial lives a little bit more like scientists we need to have the right questions and then test it i mean we don't know the answers to everything but what we need to do is we need to say hmm um what's it like having this meeting with my team at this time of day what's it like having it with this time of day which is better um that's what that's what scientists do they say i have a question i have a hypothesis let's test it this way let's test it this way and um, and that's what we need to be doing rather than just kind of blindly blah, 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 going through and saying, oh, we schedule meetings when people are available. And then Outlook just basically gives us a half an hour segment. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about if we look at the day, we've been talking about the day primarily as a cyclical day, as a seasons of the day. Even do you find yourself? Are you taking that even further into a week, a month of also looking at as we have those high moves, as we have the trough, as we have those, are there some aspects even to where you find yourself personally, physiologically, psychologically, and realize, gosh, this, this is kind of feels like a trough week and, and, and honor that or 
Uh, are we going too yeah, far? Yeah, I mean, I think that here's the thing. Um, you know, the day is a real thing, mm-hmm. okay? Because um, we're on a planet, and that planet is turning. Yeah. And it makes one turn every day, okay? Mm-hmm. So the day is a real force of, of nature. It's a physical phenomenon. A minute is not. A minute is something that human beings have invented. Mm. Um, a week is something that human beings have invented. They're not real things. They're not organic. Um, and, so, um, and so I think that the day is, a, is especially powerful. That said, there is, and, and, the day, and part of it, as you say, Kevin, is physiological. Um, uh, we are biological creatures. And as with all biological creatures, we have uh, a set of biological clocks. We don't have one biological clock. We have arguably biological clocks in every cell in our body. We are temporal creatures in a temporal environment. Uh, you and I began this conversation in the past. You and I are going to finish it in the future. All right. And so that's kind of, whoa, wait a second. That's kind of heady. Right. And so, um, and so that, so we have to recognize that aspect of our, of our lives, that the day is a real thing. We're temporal biological creatures in a temporal landscape. Now, in terms of days or weeks, there are some things that are largely psychological. I'll give you a good example of that. So uh, I don't think there's any I don't think there's any evidence that physiologically we're significantly different on Monday versus Wednesday. Okay. I, I don't think so. Um, there could be. I, I don't I mean, I don't want to say no. Absolutely. But I haven't seen any evidence of that. Mm. However, psychologically, there is a difference between Monday and Wednesday. And this is some research from Katie Milkman, Jason Reese and Heng Chen Dai at University of Pennsylvania. What they have found is that certain dates operate as what they call temporal landmarks, right? They're landmarks in time. And these landmarks in time operate in the same way that physical landmarks operate in space. What do physical landmarks do in space? They get us to slow down and pay attention. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there are certain kinds of dates that trigger this peculiar form of mental accounting. Again, it's psychological, not physiological, psychological accounting. So, um, So there are certain dates on which you know, we open up a fresh ledger, like, like a business on a business has a new quarter. They open up a fresh ledger, right. new year, fresh ledger. All right. There are certain dates that inspire us to do that kind of mental accounting about our own lives. They call these fresh start dates. And there are certain dates where we say, you know what, we're going to relegate. That was a bad quarter. We're going to relegate that old quarter to the past, open up a fresh ledger on this new quarter. And what they have found is that certain dates have that kind of effect in making us more likely to start new kinds of behavior. So people are more likely to start, say, a new diet on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. Now, the fact that they're more likely to start means they're more likely to succeed. The only way you're going to succeed is if you actually start doing it. Okay. And so, so, you're, so you're better off starting a new diet, a new exercise regimen, whatever, on a Monday versus a Thursday. That's where there's an effect. It's purely psychological, but it's still that doesn't okay. mean it's not an effect. Because um, we're psychological creatures too, you're, so you're better off on, starting on these fresh start dates, starting on a Monday rather than on a Thursday, on the first of a month rather than the thirteenth of a month, on a, on a personal temporal landmark, on the day after your birthday rather than four days before your birthday. And so, in that sense, the days of the you know the da- dates actually actually matter. So when you look at this message, which, uh, again, profound, we're talking about a restructuring of how we look at our days and even further. So you've, again, the book's just come out. You've been working on it for a long time, but it's just come out. We're all getting it. We're all digesting it. You're having the interviews. Now you're going to be on stage here and there right now already. Where would you say, I'm curious to know where's the, the high end application that you could see this going. You'd like to see this going or the big vision of where you want this to impact impact the culture? I don't know. Where do you want to see it impact the most? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I, I haven't thought a lot about that, but I mean, but, but I, th- I appreciate you're forcing me to think about it. Um, so it'd be a few things. Number one is that I would like schools to start later for teenagers. Oh goodness! Uh, yes. There's a huge amount of evidence. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has told us, do not, has told school districts across America, do not start school for teenagers before 830. Um, there are major changes in kids' biology, uh, physiology, uh, uh, endocrinology, um, uh, between about the ages of 14 to 24, between 14 and 24, mid-teens to mid-20s, people become much owlier. They have a much shift toward much greater lateness. And so the pediatricians across America are, have told us, 
it is a very bad idea to start school for teenagers at 7.15 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning. Um, so I would love to see that change. Yeah. Two, if nothing else, as we talked about before, I would love to see organizations schedule meetings based on something other than just availability. That, I think that would be a huge, huge change. And then the third, I guess, would be in, um, uh, in, in healthcare so that um, more and more um, uh, healthcare providers um, are just aware of what's going on and take some steps to steer around it or mitigate it. Okay. All right. Well, it's, it's, it's huge. Thank you. I, again, I am the best beneficiary of uh, these interviews because I mean, I'm, I'm going to reframe around it. I'm, I'm violating, uh, especially the early morning stuff and the creativity part is, is possibly even the most reframing for my mind. Cause I have yeah, not put yeah. it there. Cause it's not, cause as you say, it's, it's counterintuitive, it, yeah. but that, but again, as I said, it's like, it's known in the literature, the inspiration paradox. Okay. Thank you, Daniel, for being here, for giving this message. Folks, uh, you've got to get the book. You've got to look at this. It feels irrefutable. I'll be testifying to it shortly as I restructure around it. So thanks for being with us and sharing this. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, friends, are you ready to reorient your life around Dan's perfect timing? I, I am for sure. I mean, again, get Dan's book, the new one, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing at danpink.com or wherever you buy books. If you got value from this show, please let Dan and us know. Leave a review in iTunes then email us at thanks at ZigglerShow.com. Tell us your iTunes username and we'll thank you by sending you Zig Ziglar and Tom Ziglar's book, Born to Win, an actual hard copy. Uh, And again, if you're ready to implant some of Ziglar's success into your life, stop going it alone. Go to Ziglar.com. See where you can get involved with the products, the events, the coaching. Just get somebody on your side from Ziglar. Coming up next in show 576, we hear a message from Zig Ziglar on parenting, topic we haven't hit on in a while. We're all here to get equipped for our lives of success, but how about our kids? How do we equip them in a world where it's tougher and tougher to counter the negative influence and just the gigantic amount of influences overall? How do we influence them? That's what Zig talks about. And from the message, I posted this question on Facebook. I said, do you use any strategies with your kids for one, limiting the negative input they receive from people and media and two, getting positive input into them? We got far more responses than I anticipated. It was just tremendous. You'll be intrigued to hear all of what the people shared. Tom Ziegler and I talked through the comments and we're also joined by Jen Truitt, who works with Ziegler family specifically. Well, till then, folks, thank you, as always, for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.